you have your Bibles this evening, we're going to the book of Judges, chapter 16. Book of Judges, chapter 16. We're going to start at verse 6, uh, sorry, we're going to start at verse 4 and read to verse 6, and then we're going to jump to verse 15. The word of the Lord says, And it came to pass afterward that he, being Samson, loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up unto her and said unto her, Entice him and see wherein his great strength lieth, and by what means we may prevail against him, that we may bind him to afflict him, and we will give thee every one of us eleven hundred pieces of silver. And Delilah said to Samson, Tell me, I pray thee, wherein thy great strength lieth, and wherewith thou mightest be bound to afflict thee. And then jumping down to verse 15, And she said unto him, How canst thou say I love thee, when thou, height, when thou heart is not with me? Thou hast mocked me these three times, and hast not told me wherein thy great strength lieth. And it came to pass when she pressed him daily with her words and urged him, so that his soul was vexed unto death, that he told her all his heart and said unto her, There hath not come a razor upon mine head, for I have been a Nazarite unto God from my mother's womb. If I be shaven, then my strength will go from me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. And when Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called for the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up this way. Come up this once, for he hath showed me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up unto her and brought money in their hand. And she made him sleep upon her knees, and she called for a man, and she caused him to shave off the seven locks of his head. And she began to afflict him, and his strength went from him. And she said, The Philistines be upon thee, Samson. And he awoke out of his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times before and shake myself. And he wist not that the Lord was departed from him. And tonight the title of my message is It's Not About the Hair. It's not about the hair. If you would just lift your hands with me one more time. Hallelujah. Oh Lord, your presence is so strong in this place, God. And you've already spoken to us this evening, Lord. Through the gifts, God, that you have a desire to cover us with your righteousness, God. And that there is an opportunity this evening, God, that if there be anything, God, any stain and any wrinkle, you are here, Lord, to cleanse us. And I just pray this evening, God, that our hearts would be open to receive your word, Lord. Lord, you want to deal with our hearts this evening, God. You want to speak to the things that go deep, Jesus. So I pray, Lord, we would be open to your spirit this evening, God. Have your way in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The story of Samson is a very well-known story from the book of Judges. It is one of a collection of stories that many people are somewhat aware of, even if they have very little church experience. There are references to the story of Samson that can be found in popular culture, the name Delilah is not a popular choice of girl's name because of the association with the Delilah in this story. 
It's a similar reason why you won't find many girls with the name Jezebel. But the story of Samson is often not one that is told in its entirety. And if you take the time to read all of Samson's story, you'll understand why there were certain portions that were skipped over in Sunday school. I still recall the first time I read the full story of Samson, having having only ever had the sanitized Sunday school version. And the shock that this kind of story was in the Bible when it sounded like the plot of a movie that my parents would definitely not let me watch. And I am in no way here um, here to bag or to criticize Sunday school this evening. That is not my intention. But Sunday school is designed to be a platform to introduce our children to the Word of God, whereby they can launch themselves into studying the Word of God. It is not designed to be the only comprehensive study of God's Word that we are ever exposed to. And I'm speaking to those of us who grew up in Sunday school this evening that we should be grateful to be have given that platform as an introduction to the Word of God. But if we never take it further than that, then stories like Samson's become reduced to a strong man with long hair. And we miss out on the rich lessons that can be found in these Sunday school stories. Because really, it's not about the hair. Our opening text is from Judges chapter 16 and is the popular portion of Samson's story where he encounters Delilah and ultimately loses his strength. However, Samson's story really starts in chapter 13. Samson's mother was barren, and unable to conceive a child. But an angel of the Lord appears to her and tells her that she will conceive a child and that he will be a Nazarite unto God from the womb. The conditions of the Nazarite vow can be found in Numbers chapter 6. It says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When either man or woman shall separate themselves to vow a vow of a Nazarite, to separate themselves unto the Lord. He shall separate himself from wine and strong drink, and he shall drink no vinegar of wine or vinegar of strong drink. Neither shall he drink any liquor of grapes, nor eat moist grapes or dried. All the days of his separation shall he eat nothing that is made of the vine tree, from the kernels even to the husk. All the days of the vow of his separation there shall no razor come upon his head, until the days be fulfilled in the which he separateth himself unto the Lord. He shall be holy." And shall let the locks of the hair of his head grow. All the days that he separateth himself unto the Lord, he shall come at no dead body. He shall not make himself unclean for his father, or for his mother, for his brother, or for his sister when they die, because the consecration of his God is upon his head. All the days of his separation, he is holy unto the Lord. The people of Israel were a chosen people who were to be separated from the cultures and influences around them. The Mosaic law was a very extensive and detailed approach to guiding this separation, but the law was flawed. The very physical commandments of expectations of separation were unable to deal with the sinful nature of humanity. The desires of their hearts would lead them astray. And time and time again, the purity of Israel would be corrupted through exposure to external influences. While a certain level of separation was expected of all Israelites, there were those who would commit to a Nazarite vow as a further act of consecration unto God. Further separation to present themselves wholly to the Lord. This vow could be for an extended period of time or indefinitely. In the example of Samson, his vow was to be for his whole life. As we read in Numbers chapter 6, as a part of this vow, 
Samson could not consume anything that came from the vine, including wine and strong drink. He was not to come into contact with the dead, nor could he cut his hair. Because Samson's vow was to be from the womb, his mother would also obey these separations while she was pregnant with her son. Samson was to be a judge of Israel. The Israelites were under the oppression of the Philistines, and it was Samson who God had chosen to begin their deliverance. The Lord blessed Samson's fulfillment of the Nazarite vow and endowed him with supernatural strength, which was used to come against the Philistines. That was Samson's purpose. And Samson would ultimately fulfill his purpose, but it will cost him his life. See, in many of the accounts where Samson comes against the Philistines, it's not because they're oppressing his people or occupying land that they should not be in, but it's because Samson's pride has been hurt. Or Samson is acting in revenge, fueled by anger and hate. He has gotten himself into a situation because he has allowed his emotions to control and be the leading influence of his behavior. And yes, in these moments, he is able to use his God-given strength to destroy the enemy. But he has found himself in battles that he should not be fighting. He is coming against the enemy, but it is from a position of unrighteous anger and vindication. Samson becomes distracted from God's purpose. The man who had been called to be separate from birth to fulfill a God-given purpose finds himself dealing with the same lust, the same anger, and the same pride that you and I face. See, church, you and I have also been called to be separate from birth. When we went down in the waters of baptism and were filled with the Holy Ghost, we experienced a new birth and became part of a chosen people. We were separated from the darkness that we once inhabited and were called to pursue a life of holiness. Just like Samson, we have drawn lines of separation. There are activities that we will no longer participate in. There are places that we will no longer go. We will present ourselves in a way that is pleasing unto God. And these acts of separation are very important, and I am in no way suggesting otherwise. But Samson's separation was an act of consecration that gave him the power to achieve his purpose. Samson's purpose was not just about long hair and clean hands, but it was about the deliverance of Israel. And you and I have been called to be separate, but separation is not the mission of the church. We have been called to take the gospel to the world. We have been called to go make disciples. And so I want to challenge us this evening. Our hair may be long, our cups may not be filled with wine, and our hands may be clean. But are we fulfilling our purpose? Are we answering the call of God? Are we reaching the lost souls of the world around us? Or are we just using our separation as a platform of self-righteousness to judge a sinful world? We heard this morning about the rapid moral decline that is happening before our very eyes. But as Christians who have a hope in Jesus, this should not be what consumes us. Samson was distracted by battles that he should not have been fighting. And it's no secret that the world around us is headed for destruction. And it's filled with wickedness and perversion. And if I'm honest, I look at some of the things that are being done in the world and I'm horrified. But we're not called to stand in the safety of our salvation and curse and ridicule the world around us. We're called to be a light in the darkness, to reach for the lost souls. We're not called to preach their condemnation, but to preach their salvation. 
We're not called to stand here and look at them and think, I'm so glad that I'm not them. I'm so glad that I've been saved. We should be thankful for our salvation, but it should be our salvation that motivates us to reach them, that they can experience what we've got, that they can be brought out from the world and into the church, that they can experience the light of Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. A few weeks ago at work, there was a morning tea that was arranged for a cause that as a Christian I could not support. And I made the decision to stay and work at my desk rather than attend this morning tea, which I believe was the right decision to do as part of my personal convictions, as a part of my separation. But as I was sitting at my desk, working in an empty office, because everyone else had gone, I was thinking about the impact of what I was doing. See, in the grand scheme of things, my lack of attendance at this morning tea, which I still believe was the right thing to do, is probably going to have very little impact on the salvation of my co-workers. And while I've been very active in avoiding being associated with this cause, how active have I been in trying to form relationships and have conversations with my co-workers about Jesus? My separation is important, but so is my mission. It's not about the hair. Hallelujah. As we read Samson's story, we know that his separation is slowly compromised. But the root of Samson's issues were not found in his separation, but it was found in his heart. You do not have to be a biblical scholar to read the story of Samson and realize that he was a man who struggled with lust and impulse control. He was irrationally emotional and easily manipulated. His heart sought after the satisfaction of his flesh and he would often use his God-given gifts to achieve this satisfaction. God will honor our separation. He will honor the physical convictions that we keep out of our consecration to him. But physical separation will never be enough to make up for a sinful heart. We believe in being separate from the world as a witness of the holy life that we are pursuing in Jesus We believe in principles of separation that protect us from conceding to our sinful nature. And please do not misunderstand me this evening. I'm not criticizing or tearing down separation. But separation doesn't ensure salvation. Because while the physical may appear righteous, the hair may be long, the cup may be empty, and the hands may be clean. But if the heart is corrupt, then one day when we stand before God, he's going to look right past our separation to judge the condition of our heart. He's going to look right past the things that we've done and the things that we've stuck so carefully to, and he's going to see the things that we've tried to hide, the things that we've tried to brush off, the sins that we've tried to see as no big deal. He's going to see those things, and it doesn't matter how long the hair is or how empty the cup is or how clean the hands are because he's going to see into our hearts, and that is what is ultimately going to be the thing that separates us, that puts us either in heaven Or puts us in eternity without God. The idea that following rules or laws of separation will secure your salvation is the ideology of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were meticulous with their fulfillment of the law of Moses. Which to their peers presented them as holy and devout. But Jesus was able to look into their hearts. Matthew chapter 23 starting at verse 25 says... Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, 
that you make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Even so ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Despite their outward presentation of cleanliness, it was the content of their cup that concerned Jesus. The purpose of a cup comes down to what it is filled with. A cup that is unclean on the inside is not suitable or safe for use, no matter how clean the outside is. The outside of a cup can provide insight into what the inside of a cup may look like. But when you and I choose a cup to drink from, we place a lot more value on what the inside of the cup looks like than what the outside does. Jesus says that if we cleanse first what is within the cup, the outside can then be clean also. His first priority has always been the heart of his people. In Mark chapter 12, Jesus is asked what the first commandment is. It reads, And one of the scribes came and having heard them reasoning together and perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, What is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. From the very establishment of the law, Jesus has always desired that the hearts and the minds of his people would be for him. He has always been concerned with the inside of the cup first because it's not about the hair. It's not about, yes, the the law was important. The separation was important. It's what preserved Israel. It's what would have preserved Israel. But above all else, Jesus desires a people that their hearts are toward him, that their hearts desire one thing, and it's to show the love of God. It's to be filled with his love, to love him with everything that they have, that those acts of separation would be an act of love unto him, not that they would be a reason to hide behind or to be self-righteous behind, but that they would be done out of love towards him. And while a clean outer cup may be enough to convince those around us that the inside is doing okay, you will not convince the Lord because he sees right through. He made you. He knows exactly where you're at. He knows exactly what the state of your cup is. All of us in this room are at different stages of our walk with God. But I can tell you that it doesn't take very long to be in this thing to figure out how to maintain a facade of holiness. Samson's heart is the reason his separation crumbles. Because like all of us, we can do our best to maintain that facade. But eventually the content of our cup will come to the outside. And the pretty white tomb, while its appearance may be maintained, it's going to begin to smell of its rotting content. And you can no longer convince that it is beautiful and that it is intact and that it is holy and that it is separate and that it is clean because what is on the inside will come to the surface. 
instead of our separation and sanctification being an act of obedience and love for God, it will become a task and a chore that stands in the way of the desires of our heart. Because it's not about the hair, it's about the heart. And there have been many people both in the Bible and out of the Bible who have tried to desperately convince God and the people around them that true holiness and sanctification could be achieved without the surrender of their hearts. Because their hair was long and their cup was empty and their hands were clean. It's what cost Abel his life at the hand of his brother. It's what cost King Saul the favor of God. It's what cost the priest Eli, his two sons, the Ark of the Covenant and his life. Because they desperately tried to convince themselves that because they were obeying all the rules and because they were doing the right things, that the sin in their heart did not matter. Hallelujah, that the sin in their heart could be hidden with acts of goodness and obedience of the law. But the Lord saw their hearts and he brought judgment. It is dangerous to assume that the lack of immediate judgment from God is an endorsement of the state of our hearts. God's mercy and grace is not something that we should gamble with. It's not something we should take for granted. It's there if we make a mistake, but only to give us time to come to repentance, not to endorse our sinful actions, not to endorse the uncleanness of our heart, but it's there to bring us to repentance, that God is still available even when I've made a mistake, even when I've messed up, I don't have to fear immediate judgment because God is there. He is willing to reach out his hand if I will come to repentance. But often, too often, we take that mercy and we take that grace and we use it as an excuse to do what we want, to fill up the desires of our heart because we know, we know, we guarantee that we will be okay, but we don't have that guarantee Samson's vow was in danger before he even met Delilah. Judges chapter 14, starting at verse 5, says, Then went Samson down and his father and his mother to Timnath, and came to the vineyards of Timnath, and behold, a young lion roared against him. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and he rent him as he would have rent a kid. That's referring to a young goat, not a child. And he had nothing in his hand, But he told not his father or his mother what he had done. And he went down and talked with the woman, and she pleased Samson well. And after a time he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees and honey in the carcass of the lion. And he took thereof in his hands and went on eating, and came to his father and mother, and he gave them, and they did eat. But he told not them that he had taken the honey out of the carcass of the lion. The first time Samson betrays the vow of the Nazarite happens in private. He partakes of the honey that comes from the carcass of a dead animal. And no one is aware of what has happened. But Samson is still strong. There's been no immediate consequence. No sudden departure of the anointing of God. Everything seems normal. And without consequence. A few verses later, we read that Samson is enjoying his wedding festivities with his bride, a Philistine woman. She came from the very people that Samson was purposed with delivering his people from. And these festivities last for seven days, as was custom in those days and even today in cultures around the world. 
And there is no scripture that explicitly states where Samson, if Samson chose to consume or to not consume wine during the feast. We know the Nazarite thou forbade it, but we also know that Samson is a man that acts on impulse and is controlled by his feelings. And it's possible that he breaks this aspect of his vow at this feast. But whether or not he has betrayed this element of the Nazarite vow, the very act of marrying a woman from a nation outside of Israel is a defiance of the law of Moses. But yet Samson is still strong. He is still able to slay the Philistines, carry the gates of the city on his shoulders. His power is still intact, but what about his heart? The final straw is where we read our opening text. Samson is seduced by Delilah into revealing the cause of his strength, the Nazarite vow. And while Samson sleeps soundly in her lap, she asks a man to come in and take a razor and shave his head. A Nazarite would only cut their hair as an offering to symbolize the end of their vow. And when Samson awakens, the vow is broken. The strength is gone and the Lord has departed from him. And he doesn't even realize it. Until the Philistines have captured him and made him a slave. Samson's heart is what leads him into the lap of Delilah. Samson's heart is what puts his power and his anointing at risk. Samson was comfortable in the strength that God had given him. He had become so accustomed to it. Perhaps he never considered that God would actually take it away. But a foolish, prideful, lustful heart lulls Samson into the hands of the enemy, powerless to rise up against them. Powerless to accomplish the very purpose that was given to him from birth. Samson may have never personally taken the razor to his head, but his heart compromised his separation, which compromised his power and compromised his purpose. Just like Samson, we can become so accustomed to the blessings of God. We get used to the anointed worship services, the powerful preaching, the healings, the deliverance, the anointing of God that is upon our lives, the readily available repentance and forgiveness. We become so accustomed to these things that they become normal to us. And then we make a mistake or we sin or we break a private area of consecration that no one knows about. And we think it's okay because the services are still anointed and the worship is still powerful. And God is still healing and God is still delivering and the anointing is still there. So it must not be that bad. We must still be okay with God because there's no immediate judgment or consequences. Our hair is still long. Our cup is still empty. We're still way more righteous than the world. We're not as bad as them, so we're okay. But if we let that sin sit in our hearts and if we do not deal with the condition of our heart, we can be assured that the condition will not be isolated to just this part of our consecration 
or just this part of our separation or just this part of our lives. And we can deceive ourselves right into the lap of Delilah. Convinced that when we wake up, the power of God will still be there. The anointing will still be there. Because when we lay down, our hair was still long. But it's not about the hair. It's about the heart. Hallelujah. If you would stand with me this evening. Oh, hallelujah. This evening, I don't believe God wants to challenge us on our separation. I believe he wants to challenge us on the condition of our hearts. The things that we have convinced ourselves do not need to be dealt with or are not a big deal. He's not challenging the outward presentation of the cup, but he's challenging what's on the inside. What have we tried to cover What have we tried to hide? What in our hearts is affecting our ability to achieve our purpose? Affecting our ability to reach the lost? Affecting our ability to go make disciples? What have we become caught up with that we've become distracted from reaching out to those around us? And this evening, it's not about the hair. Your hair may be long and your cup may be empty and your hands may be clean. But what's the condition of your heart? What's the condition of the heart? Because when that trumpet sounds, it's not going to matter how long the hair was, how empty the cup was or how clean the hands were. But it's going to matter about the condition of your heart. It's going to matter about the things that we've tried to hide. The things that we've put off is no big deal. The things that we've taken as okay because the anointing's still there. The services are still powerful. The worship is still great. The preaching is still on point. But that doesn't mean that your heart is okay. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. These altars are open this evening for anyone who wants to come and present themselves. This is an opportunity to check in on the condition of our heart. This is an opportunity to ask the Lord for forgiveness. This is an opportunity for repentance. Do not take it for granted. Another opportunity is not insured. We're not promised tomorrow. We don't know what it's going to look like. Now is the time to present ourselves before the Lord. To say, God, examine my heart. Look in the crevices and the, the crannies and the things that I've tried to hide, Lord. The things that have been there a long time that I've taken for granted, that I've assumed are okay, Lord. Hallelujah. These altars are open this evening.